You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast at savage.love. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual harmony, I don't like to open my usually fun, usually light sex advice podcast with bad news, with grief and rage and despair. That's not what you come here for. I get it. And sometimes I can ignore a story that's dominating the news, but other times it would seem unforgivably insensitive of me to do that. And this is one of those times. My heart breaks for the victims of the white supremacist terrorist in Buffalo, New York, An 18-year-old man, armed with an AR-15, walked into a supermarket in a black neighborhood and shot 13 people, killing 10. I ache for the families and friends of the victims, all of them victims of racism, of white supremacy, and victims of Fox News and the radicalized Republican Party. Fox News and the GOP took the Great Replacement Theory the idea that there's an active conspiracy to replace white voters in the United States with black and brown people from all over the world who will supposedly vote for Democrats. This is the reason the great replacement conspiracy theory is the reason this white supremacist terrorist gave for shooting little old black ladies out shopping for groceries. Fox news lifted that poison from the message boards of white supremacist websites and pumped it into American living rooms, and airport bars, and army bases, and truck stops, and sports bars, and into the mainstream of the GOP. Other countries have right-wingers. The terrorist who massacred 10 people in Buffalo modeled his attack on the mosque massacre in Christchurch, New Zealand, right down to live-streaming it on the internet. But within days of the attack in Christchurch, New Zealand banned semi-automatic weapons. It's been 3,804 days since 20 children and six teachers were massacred at Sandy Hook by a man who, like this terrorist in Buffalo, was armed with an AR-15. You know, within days of peaceful protests outside the homes of Supreme Court justices after the draft of the opinion overturning Roe leaked, Congress passed laws beefing up security around the homes of Supreme Court justices. The same Supreme Court justices, in some cases, who declared modest buffer zones around abortion clinics to be unconstitutional limits on free speech. Buffer zones created to protect patients and staff at abortion clinics from mobs of anti-choice activists who'd already proven themselves capable of violence. Right-wing anti-choice terrorists have bombed clinics and shot and killed doctors who performed abortions. One in front of his family in his kitchen, and one in a church. Congress moved within days to protect these hypocritical justices from peaceful protesters. Meanwhile, it's been 1,289 days since a white supremacist armed with an AR-15 massacred 11 Jewish people and wounded six others during services at the Tree of Life Synagogue in Pennsylvania. It's been 876 days since a white supremacist armed with an AK-47 massacred 33 Latinos and Hispanics at a Walmart in Texas. It's been 427 days 
since a right-wing Christian terrorist murdered eight people, mostly Asian women, at three massage parlors in Georgia. Look, we can't legislate hate out of existence, but we could make it harder for haters to commit mass murder. But we won't, which is why I feel such despair at this moment. Not only is nothing going to be done to prevent radicalized right-wing terrorists like these men from getting their hands on weapons of war, but the Supreme Court is on the verge of striking down state laws that ban the concealed carry of weapons. That's probably going to happen this summer along with overturning Roe. And it's going to make it legal for people to carry guns, including assault weapons, into your workplace. But you'll still have to pass through metal detectors to get into their workplace. I read this headline today in the New York Times. A gun dealer who said he sold the suspect in Buffalo an assault weapon in recent months described a routine transaction. And isn't that exactly the problem? That gun dealer also told the New York Times, I don't understand why an 18-year-old would even do this. You know what I don't understand? Why anyone would sell an assault weapon to a teenager. Why it's legal to sell an assault weapon to a teenager or to anyone at all. How many more have to die before we do something about it? About all of it. Not just about the guns on our streets, but about the white supremacists on Fox News and in Congress. I know this is a drag. I know. I like to open the show with something upbeat, weird, funny, light, something that reminds us that sex is crazy and ridiculous and fascinating and we're all in it together. And hopefully next week, I'll be able to do just that. All right, coming up on today's show on the micro, tons of your cues, lots of my A's, and longtime friend of the show, and perhaps my most frequent returning guest, Mistress Matisse, is back. I got a question from a woman who was told to keep the word whore out of her mouth because she isn't one. And we take that question. We also took a question from a sex worker who says she caught feelings for a client, which is a thing that can happen, but it is not a thing sex workers want their clients to think will ever happen to them. Some of Matisse is on the micro, all of Matisse is on the magnum, which you can subscribe to at savage.love. All right, let's get to it. Hi, Dan. I'm a 37-year-old straight cis man from Canada. My wife and I have had a monogamous marriage for several years now, where we have dabbled in swinging, hot wifing, and some solo dating. Well, a couple of months back, I found out my wife was having an affair with one of the guys that she had previously seen in our hot wife days. The terms of our solo dating involved us being open about who we were seeing, checking in for dates, and not being involved with unethical people like a person in a monogamous relationship. To keep it short, she wanted to date the guy, but found out months after their hot wife date that he was married. So she knew I would not approve of him since he was married and not in an open marriage, so she kept it hidden. I then found out she broke it off and went no contact with him. Now we are doing pretty well, both going to counseling and not feeling like we're going to split up, and I don't think either of us want that. But I'm wondering if you have heard of any resources for people in non-monogamous or polyamorous relationships that experience infidelity or betrayal. As for me, it's not the physical acts, as we're both already sleeping with others, but the period of lying and breaking those boundaries that we'd already set up. Yeah, just curious, as uh, most fair books and stuff online isn't really aimed at the non-monogamous folks. So, just looking if you have any tips. 
your wife did a bad thing to you. And she did a bad, bad thing with this other guy. And the bad, bad thing was not something she did to you or that other guy did to you. It's something your wife and that other guy did to his wife. Your wife broke the rules that you two laid down to make your ethically non-monogamous relationship ethical. That was not good. And she has hopefully seen the error of her ways. The evidence that she's seen the error of her ways, she's broken things off with this guy. You guys are in counseling together. She's I assume, apologize to you. Otherwise, you wouldn't be calling me. I don't see why you necessarily need ethically non-monogamous specific resources for a couple in your situation to heal from this. Because what you have to heal from here is, I'm sorry, less than a couple in a sexually exclusive relationship would have to heal from if the rules were broken involving sex with somebody else in a sexually exclusive relationship. If you and your wife had been monogamous, and this represented not just a rules violation, but the kind of violation people often feel when their partner, their sexually exclusive partner, has sex with somebody else. I think that cuts deeper and is harder for many people to heal from. But I do think people can and do and often should be able to heal from that. And just bearing in mind that couples can and do heal from this can help couples who are facing that kind of emotional betrayal, breaking of rules, sexual betrayal, help those couples heal from that. What you have to heal from here, I think you need to put it in perspective. It's less of a bad thing, less of an enormous rules violation or emotional betrayal than it could have been. Your wife already has sex with other men. You do the hot wife thing. You guys have been ethically non-monogamous for a while. You have sex with other women too. There was a rule that those relationships, you know, if you're going to go out on a date with somebody, you're going to go see somebody else. If you're not together, it has to be disclosed. Your wife didn't disclose this. Why? Well, she knew that you wouldn't approve. Maybe it came out after you had a hot wife experience with this guy that he was married to somebody else and not in an ethically non-monogamous relationship. I have to assume that to be the case because you say one of your rules was no sex with people who are cheating and you had sex with this guy and he was cheating, which I think is an indication that whatever the screw diligence, I love that phrase, screw diligence, whatever screw diligence you and your wife were doing about your other partners before getting together with them, it wasn't diligent enough. Now, when you're going to have sex with somebody else, they respond to your ad, you're a couple, You don't have to hire a private investigator to do a background check. You don't put that person under oath and depose them, and you can't. So if he withheld this from you, okay, that's bad on him. That's on him. That was a shitty thing to do. If you guys didn't ask until after, well, how diligent were the two of you being about excluding married cheaters from your fucking around pool and you and your wife, you got with this guy and she wanted to fuck him again and it came out afterwards and and she bent and broke the rules. Seems to me that if your wife has apologized, you're in counseling, you're processing this and she's being respectful and considerate of your feelings, you don't need a book that's written just for you, just for couples in your circumstance. The books that are written for couples who are healing from, you know, monogamous couples, healing from the betrayal of an affair should more than encompass your experience. 
And I would point you to a couple of those, maybe the ones that I recommended a million times by Esther Perel. And I would urge you to, I want to say get over it, but that's a little cold. So I'm going to say, try to keep this in perspective. Your wife fucks other people with your approval. She fucked somebody else without your approval. It's the without your approval part that you have to forgive. And I'm sorry, you know, as somebody in an ethically non-monogamous relationship myself, I don't think that is as deep or bloody a wound as cheating in the context of a sexually exclusive monogamous commitment. And I don't think it's going to help repair your relationship if you attempt to blow it up to that size betrayal. Hi, Dan. I'm a 41-year-old bisexual female living in the rural Pacific Northwest. I'm somewhat recently divorced and getting back into the dating scene. Uh, I keep running into this problem just over and over again where I match with someone. Things are going just fantastic, conversations flowing, and inevitably the talk turns to sexual compatibility. Uh, I'm absolutely not ashamed of my past. I am an experienced woman. I've crossed just about everything off my sexual bucket list. Uh, I'm very proud of all the fun I've had in my life. I've played safe and feel very fulfilled. Uh, if I had to slap a number on my number of partners, probably in 80s, 90s, maybe more, all that fun group activity, you know, and one of three things happens. Either they drop off the face of the planet at that point, and that's fine. I'm not everybody's cup of tea. Uh, two, uh, suddenly I am no longer seen as someone who's dateable, but rather just someone who's fuckable. Talk of any dating or romance just completely drops. But more often than not, this usually leads into conversation with these gentlemen of their own fantasies, their own desires. And more often than not, they find that it's generally things that either I am absolutely open and willing and GGG, or it's something I have experience with and it's something I'd love to help them with and share. If, if we're going to be a couple, that would be fantastic. At this point, maybe we've just been texting, talking on the phone. Maybe we've even gone on a date. But every time, at, at this point, they drop off the face of the planet. They're no longer interested in dating me. They ghost me. It's just done and gone. And I'm just frustrated, especially from the ghosting. Like, it's, it's okay if you're not into me. That's fine. But, you know, at least say goodbye. Um, anyway, help me, Dan. I'm trying to figure out how can I be seen as someone who's both dateable, worthy of love and romance, but also someone who <laughs> is really great in bed with gobs of experience that I have to bring to the table. Well, hello there, recently divorced 41-year-old bisexual woman, newly back on the dating scene. Everyone is frustrated by ghosting, not just you. And it is really common and really aggravating. Seems to me that you may have a problem partly rooted in where you live. You say you're in 
rural Washington. People talk about Washington state as a blue state. And whenever I, I'm going to say something that gets me in trouble right now, whenever I meet anybody who tells me I'm lucky to live in a blue state, I tell them I live in Seattle. And if you drive 90 minutes in any direction from Seattle, it's deliverance or the Pacific ocean. So you may be scaring off the guys in your area because you are more sexually experienced than they are, even in urban areas. Even guys who like to think of themselves as feminist and progressive can be easily intimidated by a woman that they perceive as being more sexually experienced than they are. It is a cliche of sexual research that men exaggerate their number or their body count, as the kids call them these days, and women round their number or their body count down. And women round that body count down because of slut-shaming, but also because it scares men off, which I guess is a knock-on effect of slut-shaming. So it would be great if you lived in a world where when you start talking about sexual experiences with a new potential romantic partner, you can just be as open and transparent as you would like to be and you should be able to be. But what you're learning from your experiences in the area where you live is that intimidates guys and scares guys off. So I don't think you should actively lie, but it seems to me that you might want to get a little bit more strategic about how you roll this info out. And when you get to sexual experiences, draw them out, let them talk, share a little bit. Don't lie. Don't say you've only had four romantic partners and you've never done X, Y, or Z. If you've had 80 and you've done X, Y, and Z, but maybe don't do a whole info dump. Don't disclose everything all at once for fear of the outcome that you're accustomed to now, which is guys either seeing you as somebody they can, you know, blurt their fantasies out to and then feel weird and awkward about and run away from or drop you because they think of you as a harlot or a slut or the whore of Babylon or whatever it is that these men in this rural area out there in deliverance of the Pacific Ocean where you live are thinking of you at those moments. And if you don't want to fuck around with anybody or help anybody scratch anything off their bucket list, if they're not willing to date you and get to know you better and meet you in person, make that a condition. Don't get into long extended online talks with someone about their fantasies or your experiences without first meeting up with that person, getting to know that person and having a few dinners with that person. And then, you know, if that's the kind of jerk who thinks a more sexually experienced or a woman as sexually experienced as you isn't worthy of their time, attentions, affections, or dick, maybe they'll experience a little cognitive dissonance and have to weigh their prejudices about more experienced women against the person that they've gotten to know as they've gotten to know you. So yeah, roll it out slower, not because you should have to, but because you're going to keep having potentially this outcome if you don't roll it out a little slower. Also, you don't want to overdetermine this. You say you are recently divorced and recently back on the dating scene just because you've had a string of experiences where, you know, you exchanged info with somebody for a while and texted back and forth with somebody for a while and then they went quiet or ghosted you. Ugh, that's kind of what it's like out there right now. And it could just be that none of the guys that you've met 
were interested in you, the better they got to know you. And it had everything to do with your vast sexual experience, an admirably vast sexual experience, or maybe that was incidental or it had nothing to do with that. And they were just time wasters. I think a lot of the guys who were ghosting people and women who were ghosting people online without ever actually meeting up face to face, even just for coffee, are time wasters. And so they were never going to follow through, never really interested in meeting you or fucking you or anything else in many of the cases of these guys who've wasted your time because they were time wasters. But don't overdetermine it. You know, it could be this, hmm, considering where you live, considering that you're a woman looking for a male partner, very likely this. It could also just be that you've had a string of bad luck, coincidences, and you're going to meet the right guy out there in that rural area who is as sexually experienced as you are or thrilled at the idea of getting with a woman who's more sexually experienced than he is. Hi, Dan, Nancy, and the tech savvy art risk youth. 27-year-old cis bi woman in Australia. When I was in high school for three or four years from like age 15 to 19, I had an online boyfriend We never met in person, but we would talk on the phone, talk on video, send each other gifts, uh, called each other boyfriend and girlfriend, said we loved each other, basically everything of a relationship except being in person. This ended, yeah, when I was about 19, so he would have been 24. Recently I was thinking about him and I flicked him an email, haven't talked to him in probably like five, six years and didn't hear anything back, thought of him again a little while later and did some Googling of his phone number and his name and came up with basically the information that he was nine years older than he said he was and had a different last name, was married the whole time. So he was 29 when I was 15 He was married, just had his first kid and, yeah, we used to stay up really late talking to each other, honestly, most nights. Sometimes he would be staying up till like one, two, three in the morning talking to me and meanwhile his wife's looking after their new baby, presumably by herself. Yeah, I just feel really bad for her not knowing this shit. Like he was sending me gifts and stuff like that when they were struggling for money. They'd moved in with his parents and he was spending money on me. He was giving me, you know, a lot of emotional and sexual energy that he wasn't putting into his relationship with her. So basically, Dan, what do you think I should do? Should I tell her? He knows that I know. I did talk to him about it and he was honestly quite self-pitying It was kind of uncomfortable. He didn't seem to take seriously the age thing. He didn't seem to think it was a factor at all. He basically didn't consider it and didn't think that it had a role in why he was attracted to me, you know, whether physically or for my naivety or energy or whatever. That was weird. He was very apologetic, said I was the love of his life, all of this stuff. Yeah, however, he was still using that email. He obviously, he saw my email. He responded to it when I confronted him with this information. 
Um, and that was with a fake name. So who knows if he's still doing this to other people. He said he wasn't, obviously. But who knows? So my question is whether you think I should tell her. I certainly have proof that I could send her so it would be believable, but I really don't want to ruin these people's lives if it's not going to bring about any good. I just feel like if she knew, she would probably be able to put so many things together and stuff would make sense. I really just don't know. It seems to me that someone who's been married to a liar and a creep for a very long time most likely knows that their husband, this woman most likely knows that her husband is a liar and a creep. And yet you're operating under the assumption, and and maybe you're right, maybe she has no idea, but you assume she didn't know at the time. And even if that's true, and even if she hadn't figured it out since, I guess what you need to wrestle with is whether this woman that you claim to be concerned about, she's your concern, whether she would benefit from knowing this shit now. It's been six years since this online relationship, this very inappropriate online relationship ended. You were 15 years old when it started. You were a minor. He was not a handful of years older than you, not five or six years older than you. He was 15 years older than you. And he was obviously getting something out of having your attention that he valued. And as the much older person in this online relationship, it's possible that he was leveraging your naivete against you or, you know, using his experience to manipulate you into providing him with what exactly conversation and a a strong emotional connection. You say you talked every day. You don't say that he ever asked you for inappropriate photographs. You don't say that you two had sex, online sex, cyber sex. Maybe you did. And maybe you just didn't include that detail, but you know, you don't mention it. It seems like something you would have mentioned if that had been his primary interest in you. If his primary interest in you was sexual and he was sitting on a trove of photographs of you, illegal photographs, photographs taken when you were a minor at his instigation, it seems that that would be a huge concern for you and maybe something you would want this woman to know. And you didn't leave a phone number, so I can't call you back. And I feel like I have to separate my advice out into two little piles here. There's the pile where he manipulated you into having sex with him and cyber sex with him and sending him photographs of yourself that he encouraged you to take for him when you were a minor, in which case you might want to call the police because somebody who does this to a 15-year-old girl, a man in his 30s, probably has done it to more 15-year-old girls and maybe doing it to 15-year-old girls right now. So Maybe not the wife you need to contact, but the authorities But if he did none of those things, if it was really just this emotional connection, if he really just liked having a girlfriend online who was excited to talk to him about his day, and it was about this emotional connection that was rooted in lies, that was, you know, grounded in bullshit. He misrepresented himself to you. You were having a real relationship with him so far as you knew, and you couldn't, you weren't really having a real relationship with him because he had, you didn't know who he really was because he didn't tell you. If that's what it was, uh, I'm less comfortable with calling the authorities, certainly, 
I don't think there's a case there for calling the authorities if he didn't get you to take photographs or have cyber sex with him when you were a minor. And I'm less comfortable with the idea of contacting his wife. Yeah, it was a shitty thing to do. He had a young wife and a young child or kids. Maybe, like a lot of young marrieds, when the kids were very young, they didn't, they were so exhausted, or his wife was so exhausted if she was doing most of the work, which most young mothers do, that she wasn't giving him the kind of emotional attention or affection that he needed. And he went online looking for that from somebody else and got it from you. And I'm giving him the benefit of too many doubts here. What he did was shitty. It was shitty to you, to lie to you, to misrepresent himself, to manipulate you the way that he did. It was shitty to his wife. But if there wasn't a sexual component, if he wasn't pressuring you for photographs and cyber sex, it's less likely that this has been a pattern. And it could be the case that this was just something he needed when his kid was an infant. And he got it in a contained way from someone who didn't pose an IRL, in real life threat, to his wife or his family. But now does, because you have found all this out about him and he didn't come through with the kind of apology, you know, he was rationalizing his behavior or, you know, self-pitying, you said, didn't take the age gap thing seriously the way you would like him to. And that made you uncomfortable and has made you think about calling his wife. And obviously the way I'm hemming and hawing here, calling his wife makes me feel uncomfortable. You're talking about putting the burden of knowing on his wife's shoulders and then walking away. You're going to roll a hand grenade into this home, into this marriage that probably isn't perfect, but if they've been together all this time, on some level is functional. Compromises have been made. Accommodations have been made. Perhaps they've resigned themselves to each other. And it's a low-conflict whatever it is. And you can, with a phone call or an email, turn it into a high conflict, whatever it might be. And that is an awesome responsibility. And you really need to think it through. My advice, if I were in your situation and I had been manipulated sexually, he was sitting on a pile of photographs and I was sitting on a pile of icky feelings and regrets about things that this older creepy guy who lied to me, manipulated me into doing illegal things, I would blow that shit up. I would call the authorities if that were the case. But if it was just late night phone calls and email exchanges with somebody on the internet who lied to you about who they were, which is the national pastime or the international pastime of people on the internet, and there was no sexual manipulation or violation, even if there were, and I think there was in your case, an emotional violation, I would walk away. Hello, Dan, Nancy, and the whole team. I have a question for you. Uh, I want to I know your thoughts. I'm a gay guy living in New York. Uh, my question is about the dick extenders or stretchers. Just so you know, uh, I'm a guy on above average 7.5 inches to 8 inches and I heard about these uh, penis extenders and uh, I thought, you know, they kind of claim that you can get all the way from 0.5 to 2 inches if you were for minimum 4 hours a day for 6 months every day. 
I've been doing it. I'm working from home, so it's not a big deal to do it. But my concern comes to side effects. I'm a guy that is uncut, but I've been wearing this device for a month now, and I feel that I'm losing sensibility in the head of my penis. I don't know if this is something that's going to go away, or should I stop using the device, or does it work, or does, is there like nerve damage happening? Anyway, I would really like to know your thoughts. You know what? Uh, I'm not going to bring in a guest expert for you. I'm not going to go dig up a medical expert because it's 7.5 to 8 inches. Man, you have got enough dick. You don't need more dick of your own. That is a big fucking dick you've got there. And wanting another inch or two? Uh, You're just being dick greedy. If you've been wearing this cock extender, this traction unit for your dick to try to stretch it and you're experiencing numbness in the head of your penis, stop wearing that thing. That thing you don't really need to be wearing because no guy is going to look at you with 7.5, 8 inches of dick and be disappointed. If you'd like to have an occasional much, much bigger dick rather than stretching your dick and possibly doing damage to the erectile tissues or the nerve endings, get online, go get a toy, go to oxballs.com and order yourself a cock sheath or a cock extender. They're basically dildos that are hollow with a strap at the back that goes around your balls that your dick fits inside. So if every once in a while you want to have a 12 inch dick, you can have a 12 inch dick. You can have a 16 inch dick. That's as big around as a can of paint or a can of Coke to be a little bit more realistic about what you can fit into another human being. But you don't need to be stretching your 7.5 to 8 inch dick. Come on. Come on. Dude, you're just being greedy. Stop it. You've got enough dick there. You've got more than enough dick there. You've got so much dick there that that some guys would kill to have 70% of your dick in their pants or 100% of your dick in their mouths or their asses. And if you really want to plow somebody, if you really want to have a giant dick every once in a while, go get some toys. Hi, Dan. I'm a 50-year-old cis female married for 29 years to my best friend, romantic partner, travel companion, and father to our three awesome adult sons. Life is actually pretty damn good, except for this one not-so-insignificant detail. We have only had PIV sex twice in the last 10 years. Not because I don't want to or don't enjoy sex, I most certainly do, but because since the age of around 35, my husband has been struggling with same-sex attraction, grappling to understand who he is and what it means for him and for us. He's gone from watching gay porn, describing it as just curiosity, to chatting and sexting with guys, explaining that it's an online fantasy. In fact, if there was ever any suggestion by someone for a real-life hookup, he'd cut off all contact and metaphorically run for the hills. Two years ago, he floated the possibility of being bisexual, and one year ago, he landed on I'm probably gay. He also has high-functioning autism, a history of anxiety and depression, and ED thrown in the mix. For a bit of context, we had a very strict religious upbringing. Though there was plenty of falling around pre-marriage, we both set our I do's as virgins, and we've been each other's one and only ever since. We are both currently in individual therapy, and recently we've been researching and discussing ethical non-monogamy as one possibility for the future. 
The other two options on the table at the moment are separating and divorcing while still living and possibly travelling together or separating and divorcing and carving out separate lives. While we agree that there is no real rush to decide our future, we do recognise that change is necessary. Pretending to be something that we're not, a monogamous heterosexual couple has worn thin. My husband doesn't see himself ever wanting a long-term relationship with another man, although of course this could change, but he is ready to explore his same-sex attraction in a real and physical way. He's not 100% ready to come out of the closet to family and friends, but acknowledges that it's unfair to expect me to stay in the closet with him. As for me, I can't imagine a future void of passion or being sexually desired by a man. Ten years is long enough. To put it bluntly, I'm desperate for a good old-fashioned fuck. As mentioned before, we are still romantic partners with plenty of hand-holding, hugs, cuddles, back rubs in bed and even the occasional passionate kissing and fondling session. But my question to you is this. What to do when 90% that's good in our relationship is overshadowed by the 10% that leaves us both feeling sexually unfulfilled? Do you think that going down the ENM route is a realistic option? I've heard that good communication is key, something that we do really struggle with, in part because of my husband's autism. Are we simply delaying the inevitable and risk losing more of ourselves and the good that we have in the process? Would it be better just to call it a day on our marriage, step bravely into the great unknown as the best of friends? 30 years together is a lot to walk away from. You could get divorced and then start seeing other people and and build separate lives. You don't have to stay together for the kids. You say your children are adults. They're grown. You don't have to stay together to co-parent anymore. But maybe you do want to stay together just because you've been together for such a long time. And rather than divorcing because of what your husband has either learned about himself or finally been able to admit about himself that he is gay and always has been gay, maybe instead of divorcing, you could just adjust your expectations and what's allowed. Now, your expectations up to now has been that if either of you is going to have sex with anybody, it's going to be with each other. And perhaps because of your upbringing uh, or you know the attitudes you may still hold, so long as you're married to him, you're not allowed to have sex with somebody else. You can have a companionate relationship. You can stay married to your husband, continue to live with your husband, and get out there and get some dick elsewhere, as can he. Now, he says he's not interested in entering into a relationship with a man, and maybe he just feels that that would be that entering into a relationship with one person, you, was difficult enough for him because of his challenges, and he can't see himself at his age managing to bond with or find a new partner and bond with that partner the way he found or considering the ages uh, you were when you two got married and the families you came from was handed the partner he was handed. He's not going to be able to do that again. There are worse reasons to stay together than familiarity, comfort, and the kind of loving ease and rapport it sounds like you two have with each other, but you want some dick. And presumably at this point, so does he. So the question isn't, do we have to get divorced now or not? The question could be, I mean, the question doesn't have to be, do we have to get divorced now or not to go get those dicks we both want? The question could be, is there a way to structure our marriage 
such that I can get dick elsewhere and maybe date other men, but stay married, stay with my husband, and he can get out there and get some dick for himself. And then we can come home to each other, continue to love each other, stay in this relationship that we both draw significant emotional and probably social support from. There are lots of different ways to be married. A lot of couples at 30, 40 years aren't fucking anymore. And it can sometimes be the case that in one of those couples where they're not fucking anymore, one person is unhappy about that or both people are unhappy about that. It's just their desire for each other has passed and the relationship has become more sibling-esque over the decades. Doesn't sound like that's the case here, considering your husband was probably never physically attracted to you. So you're finding yourself in the place where a lot of straight couples, opposite-sex couples with opposite sexual orientations may one day find themselves. So what are you going to do? Well, you could, 50 is young. I'm 57 years old. I'm staring down the barrel of 60. You know, when I was 40, 50 seemed impossibly old. Now I'm 57. 50 seems still kind of young. And I think about the experiences I've had and the dick I've had in the last seven or eight years of my life. And so I know it's possible for you to get out there and have new experiences, new relationships, and get some dick that wants to be in you. You could do all that. Maybe it would be easier for you to do that if you were single, but maybe you'd be more comfortable doing that, or maybe it would be easier for you doing that, or maybe you could have it all. Maybe that's what I'm trying to say here. Maybe you could have it all, have everything you have with your husband now, the ease, the familiarity, the comfort, the cuddles, the back rubs, the holding hands while you watch TV, whatever, and get dick elsewhere. Maybe from a guy who's in a long-term you know, three, four decade marriage himself where the desire is gone and yet neither person in that guy to be named later in that guy's marriage wants out or wants to end the marriage. They just want to get their needs met, one of them or both of them, discreetly on the side. You could find a guy like that. You could be what makes it possible for somebody else to stay married and stay sane. And that person could be the same for you the dick that makes it possible for you to stay married to the fag that you married and stay sane. Hi, Dan, Nancy, and the tech-savvy at-risk youth. I am a cis pansexual woman, and I've got a slut challenge that I do not know what to do about. Today, I was in a clothing store where I was talking to a friend about, you know, slutty stuff, sexual empowerment, you know, how ways in which I am very excited to, um, you know, be a slut uh, now that the pandemic is sort of calming down. And in that exchange, I refer to myself as a whore. A few minutes later, a woman who I assume is a sex worker intensely confronted me about keeping the word whore out of my mouth unless I am a full service sex worker. My reaction in that moment was to just say, like, thank you so much for saying that to me. I'm sorry you even had to say it in the first place. Like, I just, I felt really awful to have impacted another woman in that way because I could see that she was really upset. But, you know, like most other women, I've been called a slut and a whore my entire life, which of course, you know, still happens. But I used to hold a lot of shame around my high level of sexual encounters. And the major way that I've been able to drop that shame is through reclaiming the words that have been used against me. So here's my challenge. The word slut still makes me feel terrible. <laughs> I've read The Ethical Slut. I am factually on board. I am logically on board. I, I know that technically I am a slut, but it does not make me feel empowered. It makes me feel like I am punching myself when I use it. Uh, the word horror, on the other hand, has felt incredibly empowering and has been very helpful. So I've got two questions for you on this. One, what are your thoughts? Is it pretty 
straightforward, you know, cut and dry the way that it was presented to me by this woman? Or is it more nuanced? Like, you know, should those of us who are not sex workers really keep the word whore out of our mouth? And two, can you think of any other reclaiming nomenclature to combat the slander of whore and slut? Because I want to continue to really like spit in the face of the patriarchy in this way, like specifically, but I also don't want to be an asshole. Joining me to help tackle this question, Mistress Matisse, Seattle's favorite dominatrix and advocate for sex workers' rights, and a longtime friend of the Savage Lovecast and Savage Love, a guest expert I've been turning to again and again for years. Hey, Mistress Matisse, how are you? Hi, Dan. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Uh, It's so great uh, for you to come back. So, whores, non-whores, can us non-whores use the word whore in joking reference to ourselves and empowering reference to ourselves or all of us who aren't whores supposed to keep the word whore out of our mouths? So there's what's ideal and then there's what's realistic in this situation. Whores, by which I mean people who do sex work for money, are under attack even more than they've always been in history uh, lately because the United States government is, is trying to attack all of our rights and our livelihoods. And so even more than at other times, this is a sensitive subject. So what I would say is that someone saying in a casual conversation that I'm a whore or this or that, that doesn't really bother me a lot. It's the usurpation of language um, in like things like media and politics where that starts to get a little bit bothersome to people like me in the sex work community. Like Amy Schumer is a comedian and she has disparaged sex workers on numerous occasions in the past. And yet now she's going on what she calls a whore tour, which is a comedy tour. But she's using the word whore because it's edgy and it catches people's attention. And she plays on sexuality in her comedy, yet she's talked shit about sex workers before. That's what we don't like, right? That's a really clear-cut example of what we're talking about. Okay, so one of the things Amy Schumer has done is sort of endorse the whole myth of conflation of all consensual sex work with trafficking, with human trafficking. I can see why then her turning around and wanting to toss the word whore around or name her tour, the whore tour would be a problem. But somebody, you know, with a friend or maybe even dirty talk during sex with a sex partner, it's such a charged and powerful word. You know, I'm not a bundle of sticks, but I was called a faggot a lot (laughs) in high school right, uh, right, and grade school. And I like to throw that word around during sex and sometimes with friends, you know, I could see us calling us each other faggots uh, in a restaurant or a store. And I don't want to have that taken away from me. I don't want to hear straight people use that term. So I guess I'm like kind of backing my way into endorsing uh, what the woman who confronted the caller in the store said, like, I wouldn't want her, somebody who wasn't a faggot, tossing the word faggot around, maybe for the same reason the person in the store didn't want to hear this non-horror tossing horror around. It's like the situation of having, of being in public and sort of talking to a friend and having another person approach, like, that's really weird. And I, I don't, um, I don't think that's usually the best way to go about these things. And I don't think it's necessarily useful all the time. I mean, people do use it like casually in an intimate situation. And I don't want to be sneaking into people's bedrooms and like throwing down some kind of like verbal red flag about what they said in bed. It's just that people as a rule, like we're not good at only using certain words at certain times and in no other times and places like that. We kind of fail at that. So I, you know, I, this person was a friend of mine. I would, I would mention it to her, but I, I wouldn't like end a friendship or anything with her over it. Just challenge her to think about it. 
Yeah, just just think about it. And yeah, like let's. I would explore some vocabulary. I mean, you know, uh, strumpet is a great word. I'm a big fan of strumpet. Um, hussy is a fun one. I like hussy quite a bit. You know, there's a lot of like there are many many extremely creative words for you know women who are not sexually prudes. <laughs> and so like just you know kind of lightly but also seriously, let's think about bringing some of those words back. They're great vivid words, and we should reclaim some of them too and give more space to people who are sluts. You, you know, the argument about Amy Schumer is basically she has disparaged sex workers. She's conflated sex work with trafficking. And so she's not allowed to use that word. If someone's down with sex workers, supports sex workers' rights, advocates for sex workers' rights, but isn't a sex worker, is, is that person allowed to use the word whore? You know, Dan, you and I are of the same generation. I'm Gen X. I don't really give a shit about who uses what words. <laughs> kind of me too, <laughs> you know? Like for all like all my professional life people were like you know, 30 years ago, people were like, you've got to use your column to get people to stop using gay to mean bad. And I was just like, ugh, scolding people about language, it actually gives that language more power. It makes it more attractive for the people who want to use it to be an asshole to keep using it to be an asshole. Whereas, you know, I, as painful it is for kids in like middle school in the 90s to hear people use gay to mean bad and terrible and dumb, it passed. And if we tried to wrestle the word out of the mouths of middle schoolers in the 90s, they would cling to it or clamp their jaws down on it to torture the metaphor more tightly. And so I just like the policing language thing always, not only to me feels futile, it feels counterproductive. I, I agree with you. Now, our opinion is not necessarily the opinion of people who are now in their twenties, um, but you know, God so knows. maybe it's generational. But uh, that's, I, yeah, I think it's you're never going to get everyone to abide. I mean, you're certainly never going to get any every people to respect the word whore. Like, if people don't even respect real life whores, they're not going to respect the word whore. So, you know, you can make yourself crazy trying to police these things, or you can try to keep your focus on the bigger picture. It's my opinion. And if you got out there and said, you know what, I'm not going to use the word whore because that belongs to sex workers, you'd probably get jumped on by half a dozen or more sex workers online telling you that whore is not an acceptable word to apply to sex workers. Right. Yeah. I mean, even in even in my circles, saying using the word whore often and, you know, vigorously will get you some side eye. So yeah, there's not even there's not even agreement amongst all of us about it. Can we keep you on the line for a couple more calls? Oh, I'd love to. I got one more, uh, actually, from a sex worker. Here we go. Hi, Dan, and all the hardworking staff at the podcast. I am a 30-something sex worker on the East Coast, and I have kind of an interesting question for you. So I had a client who booked me about four months ago, and um, we hit it off. It was good seeing him, and pretty Soon thereafter, he started falling in love with me. And I kind of have a personal policy to not date any clients, but he was very sweet and basically asked me if I would ever date him. I told him about my policy. We continued to see each other. It was professional. And then I like started to like him. So long story short, he is 64. He has been married for like 34 years, happily married for the most part. And then the last 10 years or so, like, basically was looking for something else, um, looking for some passion that he just wasn't feeling in his marriage. Now, he continued to date me professionally, and I started to develop his. Now we're kind of dating. Do I just break up with him because this is going to be a shitstorm with his wife? <laughs> or 
do we try to figure out like a double life? He's very much in love with both of us. Um, very much wants to be committed to both of us, but his wife is monogamous. So I'm Polly. I have a wife, um, and who knows about my work knows about him. So it's all good on that front. But where does the line around work professionalism, but now at this point now my boyfriend and his wife, where does the integrity of all the situations come to be? Or is there just no integrity at all? Matisse, dating clients, falling in love with clients? Well, this is messy. Messy is what this is. So nobody here is evil, right? Nobody here is a bad person. Let's just start by saying that. This is a mess, though. This is a serious mess. And in a way, the person that I hold most responsible for it is the caller. Everybody has agency in this situation. Uh, We could discuss whether his wife has agency or not, but the client and the sex worker both have agency and, you know, it's his responsibility too, right? He knows that he's married and that his wife is not Polly. But I feel like as a professional, when you see someone is falling in love with you, you have some responsibility to, to deal with that issue, at least talking with them. And, and they're not, clients are not going to always act in their own best interests. And sometimes you have to act in their best interest. And shut that down. Yeah. Yeah. Just, just because he's going to blow up his whole life and maybe it's a life worth blowing up. I don't know, but I can say this. I've been her. I have been her and had a situation with a client and mine was after like about 10 years, we began to get emotionally attached and his wife gave him permission, which she then later revoked and everything went sideways with them. So it's just, I don't see any situation realistically where this is going to turn out well for him, there's probably that there could be some backsplash on the sex worker if his wife gets really angry about this, and that could be not inconsiderable. And the wife, who's you know an innocent party in all of this, let's say be clear, uh, doesn't did not deserve to have this kind of thing in her life. She doesn't want it. What's interesting to me about this call is that you often hear clients fantasizing about, you know, catching feelings for the sex worker, wanting the sex worker to catch feelings for them and that causing all sorts of agitas and drama in that relationship. And I know sex workers who had to end relationships or, or professional relationships with clients because they were catching feelings and being overbearing. But what's interesting to me about yeah. this caller is that she says she caught feelings for him back. Um, you know, love does happen in all of its mysterious ways. Um, uh, yeah, that's very unusual, but, um, you know, people are people and that, that can certainly happen. I mean, it, the, the way she described it is kind of odd to me, but okay. Uh, let's just presume that she's being completely forthcoming about how she felt at every stage of the way. I, I just feel like she should, she should have, or should still back away from this and say, look, just take six months work things out with your wife one way or the other. Either you guys are going to stay together and you're going to be poly and that's going to be okay and that's going to work or else something else is going to happen. But like this situation where like she thinks the wife kind of knows about her, but she's not sure. And the husband's continue to have these relationships. It's like, this is, there's no way this can end really well for everybody. It's just not going to. Yeah. She, he, she says that he wants to be with them both, the wife and the sex worker, but the wife is monogamous. 
And that's kind of like, you know, it is or it isn't. That's a binary. Like it's an open relationship or it's not a closed relationship. He can have you both and it can be above board. You can be brought in out of the cold, like they used to say in the spy novels in the 70s. Or it's going to have to be on the down low, which is what most married men's relationships with or, you know, professional relationships with sex workers are. But what she seems to want is for everything to be out in the open above board and for that somehow to be magically okay with the monogamous wife. And that's just wishful thinking. Yeah, that's that's really not realistic in any way at all. And like, so the sex worker has another part, has a wife, person they call their wife. So again, they sort of have the power position here. Their Their emotional foundation is not riding on being in a relationship with this client, whereas this client makes it sound like He's, you know, he's getting his emotional needs met by this sex worker, and that's going to be an issue. Yeah, and it's it's not an issue that we can resolve or that I could resolve. For the, no. there's no like magic incantation here that makes this okay with no. everybody. If it's not okay with the wife, there's no way to do this above board, and you have to stop fantasizing mm-hmm. about that. And sometimes, like you say, Matisse, it's the sex worker's responsibility to be the pro and step in and set realistic expectations or reset the client's expectations so they're realistic. And right now the client's expectations that he can have them both and it all be okay with everybody are their unrealistic expectations. Profoundly, profoundly, I am sad to say. Uh, yeah, I just, I don't think there's any way this is going to go well. So I, like, if you can't bear to, like, just cut him off forever and tell him forever, then then set a time limit and say you'll come back and revisit it in a couple of months. But you need, like, she needs to back away from this guy and let him sort out what he's going to do in his marriage and then come back. Yeah, the last thing I want to highlight is she says that he became her client four months ago. If two people who weren't pros were telling me that they were madly in love and throwing around terms like, or phrases like love of my life at four months, I would laugh in their faces. You can't know that yeah. at four months. This is an yeah. infatuation and it could pass. Yeah. Well, they, they all do. But for whatever yeah. <laughs> I agree with you. Sometimes Completely. they pass and that person sticks around for the rest of your life. Sometimes they pass and that person passes too. Like, <laughs> corn the next morning after that burrito. All right. <laughs> that's really gross. Uh, one more call. Hi, Dan. My husband and I are in our mid-30s, and we have two young children, and we're both busy working professionals. We manage to have sex about once a week, and I will say that I am the more sexual person in the relationship. When it comes to having sex, I have to woo him. When he comes to bed for our weekly sex activities, he likes to recount the activities of the day, things that might be going on at work for him, individuals that he is having issues with, Uh, perhaps talk about some of the things our children are experiencing, things about his family. And then he also likes to discuss what I could improve in our relationship if he feels frustrated by me, etc. He does all of this while not making any eye contact. And when I ask him to, he often doesn't want to. I might say that this is really unsexy and frustrating. Sometimes I just want to bang. At times I've even just reached for his cock in attempt to jump his bones and he gets angry and says that I don't want to listen to him or I don't care about how he's feeling. So Dan, how do I woo my husband and create sexy time with him without having to spend 
hours recounting everything that's going on in our lives. I know nothing gets me more in the mood for hot sex than a struggle session with my partner being told what I'm doing wrong, identifying those areas in which I could improve. What's not hot about that? Wow. That, uh, I don't think that guy wants to have sex is what I took away from that call. <laughs> yeah, I completely I, agree. He is sabotaging everything. Like I sat here and thought, okay, so maybe she should not go to bed at the same time he does. So then he'll just go to sleep and then she can just get in bed and then like cuddle with him. And, you know, he'll wake up and get a boner like men do. And then he can just have sex and no one will have talked. But I kind of feel like there's something larger at work here. And maybe there's, you know, an emotional problem or a mental health issue. If he can't make eye contact with you during these conversations or during conversations at all, that could be a sign of something else. But yeah, if somebody as a condition of being sexual or intimate with their partner makes being extremely unpleasant for an hour, a condition, like you have to clear that hurdle of them being an asshole to you for an hour. Not only don't they want to fuck you, I don't understand why you want to fuck them. Yeah, yeah, that does not that does not turn me on. So I'm I'm kind of baffled by that. I mean, the other thing is like try approaching him for sex not in bed. You know, if it's sitting in bed processing, maybe that's you know, being the buzzkill here. Would he be less inclined to start to launch into a processing session if you like jumped him in the middle of the day or something? Or can you have the processing session and then take two hours off? watch severance or whatever on television and then initiate sex. Is that something that might be okay with him? But ultimately I think you and I are trying to game out how to make this work with someone who doesn't want it to work. And there's nothing we can say that'll make it work with someone who doesn't want it to work. <laughs> You're right. Where can people find you online? Twitter uh, at Mistress Matisse. Twitter at Mistress Matisse. I learned so much following you and you get, what I love, one of the things I love about Twitter quickly before it gets destroyed, if it's going to get destroyed too, is watching how it's empowered sex workers to bring their arguments to mainstream journalists who don't get it and don't understand and often don't turn to sex workers uh, when they're writing about sex work. And there shouldn't be conversations about gay people or gay rights without gay people taking part. And there shouldn't be conversations about sex work without sex workers being heard. And what I love about you on Twitter is journalists who write about sex work and don't talk to sex workers, they hear from you. Well, thank you, Dan. That makes me feel really good to hear that. Yes, I am trying to drag them kicking and screaming into the 21st. Yeah, we're going to drag them into the 21st century and prevent them from dragging us into the 17th century. Mr. Matisse, thanks for jumping on the phone today. Thanks. Good to talk to you, Dan. Bye-bye. Hi, Dan. I am a lesbian woman from Utah. I luckily don't live there anymore, but as such, I was raised in the Mormon faith, and because of that, I was married in my late teens to a man. That did not work out for many reasons, not just because I am a lesbian. The entire experience was really traumatic and horrible. Not just coming out to a community that rejects homosexuality, but the relationship itself was extremely treacherous and toxic, and I was lucky to escape with my life. Now, that was well over 10 years ago. So here's my question. My younger sister, who is about the age that I was, has been dating this guy for a couple months and they've picked out rings. They're ready to get married. She, just like I was at the time, has bought into this purity culture and has never had any sexual experiences. In the church, it's not only taboo, to, but publicly humiliating to talk about sex, to masturbate, or to have any sort of sexual experiences before marriage. 
I really want my sister to have a better chance at having a healthy relationship than I did. I think my biggest concern for her is that she's going to follow the rules of purity culture all the way through to her wedding night. And in the end, she's going to be in a position where she's not going to know anything about her own body or how to communicate her needs. I worry she's going to be taken advantage of and that she's going to experience a lot of hardship and a lot of trauma around something that really should be wonderful. I want to help give her the tools to communicate to her future spouse, to be able to establish boundaries that leads them into a world of healthy and happy sex. I'm not sure how to help her with advice that keeps her within the boundaries of her faith. I want to help my sister to conversationally figure out how to navigate this new field for her in a way that will be less traumatic for her than it was for me. Is your sister receptive to your input? Has she solicited your input when you came out and good for you for coming out, good for you for getting out of that toxic and treacherous relationship, good for you for not only seeing through what you know purity culture is and the damage it was doing to you, but extricating yourself from the situation and the faith that you were in, that purity culture had kind of boxed you into. You got out of there. Good for you. And when you came out, you were rejected by your faith community. I imagine by some people in your family, you don't say, you don't mention how your sister reacted when you left your husband, when you came out of the closet and got the fuck out of Utah, got the fuck out of Dodge. If she was supportive, if she heard what you had to say, if she acknowledged you in any way, that yeah, this purity culture that she's still a part of and has bought into could be a problem in some people's lives. Well, maybe then she'll hear you out. But if she is just another one of your family members who cut you out of her life or rejected you or told you you were sick or sinful or going to hell or not going to get your own planet when you die, you're not the right messenger for this. All that said, you want to have a clear conscience. And to have a clear conscience, I think you owe yourself, if not your sister, a phone call where you tell her that you hope that she's not making a mistake and that if she has any questions that she wants to ask you about sex, about relationships, about reality, that you're there for her, that she can ask you those questions and you can urge her to Think about sex, to do a little bit of reading about sex, to have realistic expectations about sex before marriage. But you may be in a position where you're going to have to watch your sister make her own mistakes and perhaps a similar mistake. I'm not saying she's a lesbian, but buying into this purity culture and having unrealistic expectations, not just about what marriage is, but about who she is, about what sex is. Ugh, and that'll be painful. And you can be there for her if the shit hits the fan. Still, you know, every once in a while, someone follows all of those rules and they magically work for them. In a way, they win the purity culture lottery. There's a one in a million chance, maybe a one in a 20, 30, 40, 50 million chance, in my opinion, that following the purity culture rules, you will win the purity culture lottery and be completely content in your marriage and your life with your, with the sex that you have with your one and only partner all your life. Maybe your sister has that winning purity culture lottery ticket 
And I wouldn't say then that your anxieties or misgivings are misplaced. I think you have a right to be concerned for your sister. And it speaks well of you, especially if your sister was shitty to you or rejected you after you came out, got out of that marriage, came out of the closet, that you're concerned for her and want to reach out to her. And you should. You should reach out to her. But just like going into marriage, you needed realistic expectations about sex, about desire, about sexual orientation. You need to have realistic expectations about what that phone call is going to be like. Because if your sister isn't open to you, if she's not receptive to you, if you don't have much of a relationship anymore because you're an out lesbian now and not a Mormon anymore and the fuck out of Utah, she's not going to listen to you. She may have to make the same mistakes that you made. Or she may luck out. She may have that winning lottery ticket in her back pocket. Hi, Dan. I'm a bisexual male, and I recently came out to my wife. She accepted it, and to my surprise, was actually excited by it. We recently had had some play with some people, and we've had some fun. As I've kind of gone through this journey, kind of run into a few situations where the randomness of something like grinder or kick or anything like that has started to wear on me, and I'm trying to look more towards a regular friends with benefits or even a possible polyamorous boyfriend to look at in the future. What is the best avenue to do this? I live in rural Kentucky, and it's a fairly conservative area. There is some community, but not a lot. And really, I mean, the idea of having someone to, you know, enjoy and enjoy us to a possibility or maybe just me to take care of that portion of myself seems to be very difficult and very concerning. And, you know, I know part of the reason why is typically I've been attracted to a younger version of of younger people. I'm 41 years old. So far, a lot of my partners have been in their 20s. There's been, you know, a lot of the use of the daddy fetish, which not is not necessarily a turn on to me, but it's kind of mutually beneficial. The problem I have is I've got a few people that I've been playing with on a moderately regular basis, but they're not exactly compatible with my sex drive. And, you know, at the same time, I have to, you know, focus in on the wife too, who's been more than wonderful about it. So basically I'm trying to figure out what the best avenue and the best approach is to having both a regular friend with benefits and a possible even future boyfriend while at the same time dealing with the fact that they would not be mutually exclusive to me and I to them. So you live in rural Kentucky. You're a bisexual guy, just realized you were bi, came out to your wife. She was down. She was fine with it. She was okay with it. She gave you her blessing to go out there and find some guys. And when I first started listening to your call, you know, my initial reaction was, what does this guy think? I'm a wizard that I can just pull men in rural Kentucky out of the back of my pocket or wave my magic wand or cast a spell and they will appear. And then as I listened to your call, it went on, you're not having any trouble finding guys. You found a lot of guys and guys in the age range that you're primarily attracted to. You're going to have to, you're already having to make a little bit of an effort to play up the daddy thing because it's what the younger guys who are into you are looking for and why they're attracted to you. I don't think that's 
too heavy a cross to bear. It's just a little dirty talk and a little attitudinal posturing before or during sex to scratch that itch for the guys that you're into. But there are lots of guys. You, it sounds like you've had a lot of success. You're finding a lot of sex partners out there. You're just anxious and, and impatient to get to what you really want, which is an FWB. Well, how you find FWBs is you keep meeting and fucking around with guys until you meet and fuck around with one that you really enjoyed meeting and fucking around with. And then you meet up with that guy and fuck around with him again. And then you meet up with that guy and fuck around with him again. Sometimes all that continuing to meet up and fuck around leads to a relationship. And I think an FWB of friends with benefits is a relationship. We are in relationship with our friends. It's a different kind of relationship, uh, an FWB compared to a friendship and an FWB compared to a committed romantic partner or somebody that you're open to, potentially a, a bigger commitment, emotional commitment in, in addition to all the sex you're enjoying with that person. But dude, take a deep breath. I, I understand that you recently came out as bi and you're running through a field of dicks and you're excited about that and you see on the horizon the kind of arrangement you want, which is an ongoing thing with someone that you can mess around with, maybe your wife can mess around with, and you may find that guy as you're plowing through dick. You may find the 28-year-old or 25-year-old who's like you, bi and married and out to his wife and ethically non-monogamous and has the hall pass for dick that you have and you can integrate that person in a poly way into your life, uh, into your marriage, but it's going to take some time. And, you know, that's kind of a tall order. That guy, the guy you're looking for, your ideal dick. And so in the meantime, you may have to comfort yourself with all the dick all those 20-year-olds are throwing at you in exchange for you tossing around a little daddy boy talk, a little dom energy, mustering that up. I think it's worth it. I think it's worth that effort. And it sounds like you are or have been well rewarded for that effort. And you may, in time, give it a year, give it two years. You may get the reward, the ultimate reward that you want, which is an FWB, friendship slash relationship, with someone like you, by married, wants a regular slash-ish, committed-ish thing, and is 15 years your junior. That guy's probably still going to want to call you daddy. All right, before we get to listener comments, let's read some listener tweets. Hey there, Hurley tweets. Big fan of the Savage Lovecast, but disappointed to hear Dan Savage repeat anti-choice language about the mother's health when talking about abortion exceptions. Mother, when used for people seeking slash having abortions, implies that just by virtue of being pregnant, someone is already a mother or a mother-to-be. I'm sorry. It's crazy how right-wing framing on issues like abortion on everything, right-wing framing that's repeated and repeated and repeated, creeps into our heads. I'm literally looking at my notes right now for last week's intro, and the woman's health is what I wrote down, but the mother's health is what came out of my mouth. Right-wingers, terrible at empathy, compassion, math, sex, and science, but 
so good at messaging. Thank you for the correction. Hey there, Hurley. And you are right. A pregnant woman isn't a mother unless she chooses to become one. Rebecca Hoffman tweets, fuck the patriarchy, give me candy, might be my new favorite phrase. And another Rebecca, Rebecca Coleman tweets, hey, at fake Dan Savage, can we get fuck the patriarchy, give me candy on a t-shirt? I don't see why not. You can go ahead and put that on a t-shirt yourself. Maybe we'll bring out a mug. And finally, Stephen Forrest tweets, for my birthday, I was gifted a one-year Magnum subscription to the Savage Lovecast, and a week later, at Fake Dan Savage follows me on Twitter. Coincidence? It was a coincidence, Stephen. You commented on a tweet of mine. I thought your comment was funny. I followed you. I had no idea you were a Magnum sub. But I'm glad you are, and happy belated birthday, Stephen. And I was proud to become your 64th follower on Twitter. All right, thanks to everyone who posted about the show to your social media this week. We really appreciate it. And if you want me to read your tweet on next week's episode of the Savage Lovecast, be sure to include the hashtag Savage Lovecast. And now, listener comments. Hey, this is a response call for the woman who doesn't want biological kids and uh, got, got told off by some guy she was seeing about that. I actually am in a similar situation. I called in a month or two ago to ask for Dan's advice on wanting to have kids, but only via adoption. And I had a bit of a different question, but the advice that he gave me about putting on the apps was actually, he, he told me I shouldn't mention my specific situation on the apps. I think that what you should do is probably just not mention it. I know a lot of apps like Hinge or Bumble, they, they don't give you the option to specify there's just a checkbox, want kids or don't want kids. And I think both of those in a situation like mine or yours leads people to wrong assumptions. So I think that it's better to just leave it blank. Um, if you want to mention it in your profile, you can, but I think that that might also tend to let people dismiss you who otherwise might might be interested. And you know, once, once you've started to see someone, if you're clicking and want to have that serious conversation about what you're looking for, that's when you can get into the question of how it is that you want to have kids. Now, the other thing Dan oddly didn't mention, uh, he kind of pivoted to some weird tangent about polyamory, but what he should have told you is that the guy in this situation was obviously a huge asshole. It may be that you allowed him to make a false assumption, but telling you that you're selfish for what you want in terms of pregnancy or lack of pregnancy is pretty a pretty huge red flag. So definitely, I hope you already have dumped that guy, but if not, dump that motherfucker already. And if anybody reacts in that way to the conversation about wanting kids, that's a, that's a very good reason to stop seeing them. Hi, this is in response to the caller who doesn't like to be around when her in-laws are around and not because they aren't nice people, but because um, she appreciates her space and is an introvert. I am definitely... In this situation, the husband, I have the parents who live far away on the other side of Australia. And when they stay, they often stay for two to three weeks as well. And he really can't find anything to complain about them, but also finds that it's impeding on his personal space being an introvert as well. My advice to her is absolutely like be honest with them and tell them that that's how you feel. I'm an introvert. I just need my space because if they are kind, loving, understanding people as my parents are and, you know, socially progressive, as she said as well, and empathetical, then they will absolutely understand. You know, I ended up as the partner. I think sometimes blood needs to deal with blood in certain situations. And I ended up telling my parents, you know, Jeremy really likes his space. Can you possibly stay somewhere else sometimes? Or can we just do stuff without him? 
and they were totally fine and they were like yeah sure i really think sometimes in your head you can probably make situations feel like they are more complex and stepping on eggshells but at the end of the day if they're kind compassionate people they will absolutely understand. I just hang out with my parents sometimes and he joins in every now and then, or he goes away or they stay somewhere else. So it's absolutely just a really simple conversation and just makes everyone kind of enjoy each other's company when we do all hang out. Hey, Dan, I'm a big old bottom here from the California desert calling in about episode 811, the guy from London whose fiance has anal orgasms. I've been waiting forever for this topic to come up uh, because I have orgasms like this and they rarely get talked about. And there's a few people that don't know about it. Um, and I just want to tell this guy that instead of being upset that your fiance has this type of orgasm, you should be thrilled for him and a little bit jealous because this type of orgasm is 10 times better than any other kind of orgasm you can have. It is a full body orgasm from the tip of your head to the tip of your toes they come in waves, uh, extended periods. They can be rhythmic. It really depends on who you're with. The tops that I'm with can feel me convulse when they're inside of me. And so they're getting direct feedback and they really seem to get off on that. So instead of being upset about this, you should really just lean into this hard, figure out what's making your fiance convulse, and then do that, learn what happens, and you can be in more control of it. And I think you guys can have a lot more fun. And we're going to leave it there. Got a question for next week's Lovecast or something to say about something I said on this week's Lovecast? You can use the Voice Memo app on your phone to record your question or your comment and then email it to us at voicemail at savagelovecast.com. You can also call us at 206-302-2064. New York City, the 2022 edition of my amateur porn film festival, Hump 2022, screens this weekend at House of X. And Missoula, Montana, you are getting humped too. Hump 2022 will be at the Roxy Theater this weekend. Go to humpfilmfest.com to grab your tickets to a screening. Or if you can't make it out to a theater for Hump 2022, you can find information about streaming Hump 2022 at home. National Go Barefoot Day is coming right up June 1st. And a GGG mug would make a great gift for all the foot fetishists on your NGB Day list. Order yours or theirs today at savage.love slash shop. Follow me on Twitter at FakeDanSavage. Follow Mistress Matisse on Twitter at Mistress Matisse. The Savage Love Cast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me and the tech savvy at risk youth and Nancy. I'll be back at you next week on installment of the Savage Love Cast. Thank you so much for downloading.